Next on Lectures in History, University of Utah professor Eric Hinderrocker teaches a class about Western settlement before, during, and after the American Revolution. Using the Kentucky Territory as an example, he describes the conflicts and relationships between the new federal government, settlers, and Native Americans. Good morning, everybody. We've been talking for the last uh, couple of weeks uh, in this class about the effects of the American Revolution and kind of framing that discussion around the question of how revolutionary was the American Revolution? What kinds of changes did, did it initiate in American society, American law, American government? Why should we think of the American Revolution as a revolution rather than simply a war for independence? And so we talked about We've talked about this in various uh, frameworks. We talked about whether the revolution altered the social structure of the of the states that were involved in the revolution, um, and and on uh, the last time we met, we talked about the impact of the revolution on African Americans and on the institution of slavery. Um, we saw that in that case, the legacy was quite mixed. Right, the the revolution um, set the institution of slavery on the path to destruction in the northern states, but was instrumental in kind of deepening and strengthening the institution in the southern states. Today I want to talk about two topics that are closely interrelated um, and that are really two sides of the same coin. I want to talk today about how the revolution affected Native Americans and how the revolution created a new system for thinking about making Western lands widely available to ordinary people. And those are two sides of the same coin. On the one hand, the revolution initiated a new kind of commitment to pretty rapid westward territorial expansion and a widely democratic system of land holding, land ownership, which was... Um, you know, a really powerful engine of economic opportunity and democracy for a lot of uh, ordinary white men and women and their families. Um, but it also implied a pretty exploitative uh, new approach to relations with Native Americans. And so, as I say, these are two sides of the same, same coin. And to begin kind of thinking about this just in the most abstract sense, um, there were people involved in the American Revolution, and foremost among them, Thomas Jefferson, who thought a, a great deal about this problem, who believed that one of the most revolutionary uh, aspects of the, of the revolution ought to be making land more widely available to ordinary people on relatively easy terms. And this constituted a fundamental revolution in old European ways of thinking about the availability of land. Because in the old British system, in the old English system, land was a byproduct of aristocratic privilege. And landholding was something that flowed from the top of society downward. In England, the land was owned, was owned by a relatively small number of people who owned a lot of it. And they made it available on their own terms through, you know, through rental agreements. Uh, you know, if you think about the feudal system, this is a system where tenants 
farm the lands of great lords, and it's a system that really where, where, the, where land ownership and the power associated with it all resides at the top of society. And that principle was woven into the fabric of colonization because if you think about the way lands became available in the colonies, um, they, the biggest colonies began with proprietary ownership. If you think about a colony like Pennsylvania, the first principle of Pennsylvania is the king gives all the land to William Penn and tells him he can do whatever he wants with it, right? And so this is a, this is a kind of a, um, an offshoot of that same aristocratic model where land starts at the top and is distributed downward according to whatever principles the, the powerful people who control it uh, want to want to employ, and we talked uh, last week about the fact that far from seeing that stuff die away, we talked about the the idea of a feudal revival. There were a lot of absentee landowners that had control of a lot of land, and they were beginning to assert their privileges um, more strongly. They were collecting rents in a way that they couldn't in an earlier period. So this idea of kind of, of land being tied to privilege, the privilege of a, of a small number of, of powerful men, is just foundational, not only to English society, but to the way the colonies were organized. And, and for Jefferson, this was one of, the, one of the most important things that needed to be overturned. We talked about his attack on uh, primogeniture and entail, right? Trying to break up the great estates of the most powerful family. And this is kind of a parallel idea. One of Jefferson's cornerstone principles is the idea that the, the best social foundation for a Republican government was to have a large number of yeoman farmers that owned relatively small, relatively similar amounts of land in fee simple, meaning they did not pay rent to great landlords, they held the, the land on their own terms. And so um, this idea of yeoman far- a society, a republic of yeoman farmers, was one of the foundational principles that um, many people, including especially Jefferson, uh, wanted to work pretty hard to implement after the American Revolution. Um, the problem is, of course, that making uh, abundant amounts of land widely available on cheap terms means that you have to control that land in the first place. And this was not that simple because, of course, the lands that the United States aspired to control and redistribute were lands that were occupied by Native American populations with their own claims, with their own sense of legitimacy, and um, in the process of trying to enact this theoretical revolution in the availability of land, what we'll see is that the United States took a very exploitative approach to its relationship uh, with Native peoples throughout, the, throughout, the, um, throughout Eastern North America. And that is a process that began in the revolution itself. And in order to kind of um, focus... Our, our discussion of this issue, um, I want to focus on the Ohio country and the Ohio Indians. There were Indian populations all uh, up and down the eastern seaboard in the kind of trans-Appalachian west, and there are a lot of different stories associated um, with these groups. But for our purposes, just to kind of focus um, on one of these groups, I want to focus on the Ohio country, 
which we've already talked about because the Ohio Valley was the focus of Lord Dunmore's war in 1774. So we've already talked about uh, European aspirations to control the Ohio country and Dunmore's effort to claim, basically to claim Kentucky, what is now Kentucky, from the Shawnees uh, through uh, his victory in Dunmore's war. The Ohio country uh, population is kind of an interesting and complicated population because in the early 18th century, the Ohio Valley was largely depopulated for complicated historical reasons. And so in the decades before the American Revolution, the Ohio country was being repopulated by a pretty large and diverse group of Indians that were coming both from the east, from Pennsylvania and New Jersey uh, and New York, and also coming from the north and the west. And so from the east, groups that were basically being displaced by the growth of Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and New York were three populations in particular, the Delawares and Shawnees, who were migrating west out of Pennsylvania and New Jersey, and the Western Iroquois, so a a group of of Iroquois, uh, so-called Mingos, was how they were, what what the, the name that they were given in the Ohio country. And these groups were forming Um, In many cases, uh, shared communities, the most important communities in the Ohio Valley uh, were often multi-ethnic communities, and they were moving into the Ohio Valley both to move away from the immediate pressures of the growth of colonial settlement and also because the Ohio Valley was a really good place to hunt and trade. Pennsylvania traders started traveling into the Ohio Valley and so as they moved into the, as these groups moved into the Ohio Valley, uh, Pennsylvania traders followed them, and they had a pretty robust uh, set of economic opportunities in the 1740s and 50s and 60s. So you have um, these groups moving in from the east, and at the same time, again, in response to uh, the economic opportunity created by traders from Pennsylvania, a pretty wide array of groups from the north of north and west um, that were moving out of the, the French sphere and into the British sphere in the 1740s and 50s, including Wyandots, Chippewas, Odawas, Potawatomis, and others. Like I said, it was a re- relatively diverse population of native groups. And so what I want you, the main thing I want you to understand is that when we talk about the Ohio Indians, we are talking about Um, a diverse array of peoples that had not um, functioned together. They they were not a coherent political unit. They had not operated together uh, for a very long time at the time of the revolution. And the revolution forced them to make new kinds of collective choices in response um, to the pressures of that war. They had relied on a pattern of trade uh, with Pennsylvania an alliance both with Pennsylvania and really with each other um, for a number of years without really having further coalesced as any kind of a uh, political unit. And then this was the group, of course, that was directly uh, attacked by Virginia militia in Dunmore's War in 1774, particularly the Shawnees, uh, who Dunmore thought were the most, was the most hostile of these groups 
uh, and the Shawnees were engaged in that war's one battle at Point Pleasant in 1774. And you remember that Dunmore's War um, established the principle, at least in the minds of Virginians, that Kentucky was now open to settlement. So one of the oddities of the American Revolution is that in the in the spring and summer of 1775, this is the same time that the shot heard around the world was was fired at Lexington, uh, or at Concord, rather, the Battle of Lexington and Concord, the Battle of Bunker Hill. At the same time all that stuff was going on in New England, in central Kentucky, parties of Virginians were moving into this newly claimed land in the summer of 1775, and without permission from the crown without any legitimate authority from above, but having uh, participated in Dunmore's War in 1774, dozens, uh, hundreds of people began to occupy central Kentucky in the spring and summer of 1775. This is a map that just, um, I just want to take a minute to look at, so I'm, sh- so you're, so I'm sure that you have an a vision of what we're talking about when I talk about the Ohio country. And this is actually a map that depicts um, battles in the during and after the American Revolution. But when we talk about the, the Ohio country, I'm basically talking about this area mostly north of the Ohio River. Here's where the three rivers come together at Fort Pitt to um, uh, define the headwaters of the Ohio. This is the Ohio country. And then um, Kentucky, the territory uh, that... Uh, people were beginning to occupy in 1775 and 1776 is down here. And you can see some of these early stations. Boonesboro is one of the early uh, Kentucky stations, St. Asaph, Ruddles and Martins stations. And um, this became you know, kind of the leading edge of Anglo-American settlement even before there was an American Revolutionary War. Right? So this is something that this is a process that's moving forward independent of the revolution, and yet it intersects with the revolution, and the revolution fundamentally changes the fortunes of these people who are moving west because under the auspices of the crown, they were criminals. Right, They were beyond the proclamation line of 1763. What they were doing was illegal. But under the, um, you know, in the context of the American Revolution, as the Second Continental Congress was sitting, as revolutionary legislatures were taking over in the states, it was possible for them to make new claims to legitimacy. And that's exactly what these Kentucky settlers did. In the, in, in the course of the American Revolution, these Kentucky settlers made common cause with the United States and with the revolutionary governments that managed them and they made very specific pleas about, um, about uh, the, the legitimacy of their, uh, of their occupation and settlement. They specifically talked about the fact that uh, the king had limited, had restricted access to these western lands, but that they had fought and bled for these lands at the Battle of Point Pleasant. They had a a legitimate and meaningful claim to these lands. And moreover, 
just as the United States seemed to be interested in liberty, they were also interested in liberty. And they really thought what the United States was talking about was pretty great and they wanted to be a part of it. And they said the United States would be foolish to, uh, to miss the opportunity to incorporate such skilled riflemen into their ranks. They petitioned Congress and said, you know, if you support us out here, we will fight for you and we will keep the, the native peoples off of your backs. So they basically made the case that in addition to the fact that they adhered to the same principles of liberty that the United States did, they also made a strategic argument that they could be very useful allies. And that was an argument that, uh, that, that got traction. It got traction with the, the new revolutionary state of Virginia, which began arming and supporting their, their, their little forts. Um, the communities that were settled in central Kentucky all took a form something like this, uh, where cabins were built in a circle with palisades so that the community became a kind of an, a makeshift fort. Because these guys recognized from the beginning that they were um, operating in territory where they would be regarded as hostile invaders, and it was uh, incumbent upon them to defend themselves against both Native Americans that might um, not want them there, and also as the war progressed against um, you know, the, the, the pressures of British arms as well. One of the key people involved in this process, let me ask you this. Um, so when you think of Daniel Boone, do you think of the American Revolution? Do you think of him as a figure of the American Revolution? He's familiar, right? Daniel Boone is familiar. Everybody knows who Daniel Boone was. He's a great, like, American frontiersman, right? Think of him kind of in the era of Davy Crockett. But it's weird because Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett are generations apart, right? Davy Crockett was, was at the Alamo. Anybody, can anybody place this date in time? When was, that? when was the Battle of the Alamo? 1840s. 1840s? We're talking about 1775. This is, when, um, this is when Daniel Boone's most single most famous act of pioneering took place. He led a party of settlers in the wake of Dunmore's War through the Cumberland Gap and into central Kentucky. And the, one of the first towns founded in central Kentucky was Boonesboro. It was founded in 1775. So it's weird to think of Daniel Boone as a revolutionary war hero, right? His most famous act occurred before the United States even existed. And it's fascinating that we don't, you know, in the popular imagination, we don't place him in time here because we don't think of the American Revolution as a pioneering era. But the, the American Revolution is the first pioneering era and the first, you know, intrepid, Western explorers slash occupiers, you know, um, swung into action in, uh, in the revolution and in Kentucky. Now, I want to say a little bit more about Daniel Boone in, in just a minute, but hold that thought. Um, and just to kind of talk quickly about the, the war experience in central Kentucky. Um, the various communities of uh, central Kentucky petitioned both the Virginia legislature and the Continental Congress for support, um, and they received that support. They, um, the Virginia's, uh, Virginia House of Delegates, uh, ex first of all, extended its jurisdiction 
across all of what is now Kentucky. It created a great big new western county so that those uh, new communities in central Kentucky would have uh, you know, a kind of a, a framework for government. And it started sending regular supplies of powder and lead so that these uh, settlements could defend themselves. And the Continental Congress also responded favorably to these petitions. And beginning in July of 1776, the Continental Congress manned and supplied three new forts on the Ohio River that were designed basically to protect and support these new Kentucky settlements. During the fall and winter of 1776, it sent two tons of powder, four tons of lead, boats to carry 1,500 men, and food to support 2,000 people for six months. I mean, that's a fair amount of war material that the Continental Congress was providing to Kentucky at a very early stage. And then when conditions deteriorated in the following spring, Congress sent 1,000 rifles and another ton of lead. So, you know, from the beginning of the war effort, these small embattled Kentucky communities um, were fortunate to receive the support of revolutionary governments, both at the state level and at the national level. The Ohio Indians, meanwhile, were in a, uh, in, a, in a difficult position. They were somewhat divided in terms of their sense of loyalties. The, um, the uh, article that I asked you to read for today uh, talks a little bit about the Ohio Indians and their, uh, and their decisions, their loyalties. The Ohio Indians had had a fairly long connection by 1776 to the British Empire, but they had also had a fairly long connection to the Pennsylvania traders. And so they had um, pre-existing relationships with both the British and the Americans that could have like led them in either direction. Initially, both governments um, hoped that they would stay, remain neutral, and uh, U.S. leaders pleaded with them to just stay out of the revolution told them it was just an internal spat between you know, the colonies and the English, and they didn't have to have anything to do with it. But it became clear really quickly that, in fact, the United States was putting a lot of new pressure on their territory. And so um, gradually, by about 1777, a large coalition of Ohio Indians had decided that um, their interests lay with the British Empire, with the efforts of the British to defeat the Americans, and they began uh, fighting um, against the Kentucky settlements uh, with British support. Uh, and so at, from 1777 on, uh, it, most of the Ohio Indians found themselves aligned with the British, even though you know from that article we read a little earlier in the semester about White Eyes and the Delawares. There was an earlier period where White Eyes and a, a large faction of Delawares uh, thought that maybe their best bet was to ally themselves with the United States. The Kentucky settlements really kind of helped change that uh, dynamic for them. The war ended in 1783. Oh, the war, the fighting ended in 1781, but the war was formally concluded in 1783 with the Treaty of Paris. And one of the well-known facts about this treaty is that in this in this document that defined the peace between Great Britain and the United States, no mention was made of Britain's Native American allies. They just simply the Native population of North America is simply not a subject of the Treaty of Paris of 1783, and this meant that. 
um, the United States could interpret the significance of this treaty for Native peoples any way that it wanted to. And it chose, the United States chose to interpret the Treaty of Paris, where Britain basically says, we lost the war. The United States interpreted this treaty to extend to Britain's Native allies, and in fact to all the Native peoples in the Near East, uh, whether they were allied with Great Britain, whether they were neutral, or whether they were uh, allied with the United States. In the case of the Oneida Indians, for example, it didn't help them at all in the post-war period that they had been a, uh, an ally of the U.S. during the war. And so the logic of victory in the revolution for the United States meant that not only had Great Britain been defeated, but all of the native peoples of the Near Eastern region, the Trans-Appalachian West, had also, in effect, been defeated by extension. The Ohio Indians did not accept this premise. In fact, the Ohio Indians had never been defeated themselves in, this, in, in the course of the American Revolution. They were still in a pretty strong position in 1783. Kentucky was still, um, it was starting to grow a lot faster, but it was still embattled. And they did, simply did not accept the logic that the U.S. applied to the Treaty of Paris. And so at the end of the war, everything was unclear in terms of relations between the U.S. and the Ohio Indians. In this sense, it was, kind of, it was a similar situation, um, the U.S. relation with Indian groups um, throughout the Trans-Appalachian West. I want to just pause at this point and talk a little bit about Daniel Boone um, because the, you know, his placing him in Kentucky in 1775 is a little bit surprising, you know, if, if, you, if you don't know a lot about him, if you haven't thought very much about Daniel Boone. I want to talk for a minute about how Daniel Boone first became famous because he became a famous figure right after the Revolutionary War. He um, became famous as a result of the publication of this text, John Filson's Discovery and Settlement of Kentucky. John Filson was a, uh, a land uh, speculator and promoter who was interested in encouraging the, rat the rapid occupation of Kentucky. And in the year after the signing of the Treaty of the Paris, he published this book on the discovery and settlement of Kentucky, which is kind of interesting. It narrates the, the story of the, the uh, occupation of, of Kentucky and their, their, its experiences in the Revolution, and it includes an appendix uh, entitled The Adventures of Colonel Daniel Boone Containing a Narrative of the Wars of Kentucky. And it included this, uh, the, this little biographical appendix. Appendix included this illustration that shows Daniel Boone with his uh, rifle and his hunting dog, the, the earliest depiction of, of Boone. And um, the purpose of this, of this uh, well, the purpose of the, of the pamphlet was to promote settlement in Kentucky, and the purpose of the appendix that talked about Daniel Boone was both to describe his heroism and the kind of harrowing experiences of the war, and also to stress that those harrowing experiences were now over. And so Boone became this kind of, you know, he became the first American pioneer hero, um, and uh, his fame uh, took off rather quickly. He became famous even in his own lifetime. This is the first, um, this is the first portrait painted 
of, of Boone. This was painted uh, late in his life by a man named Chester Harding. Uh, it's a um, well-known image of Boone uh, later in life. There's another early unattributed painting uh, depicting him. It's interesting to look at the clothing in these three portraits. What, do you, what strikes you about this one? What do you see? What is he wearing? Yeah, Ian. Uh, he's wearing a lot of furs, implying that he has spent time in the West, uh, sort of in the fur trading areas rather than just being settled in the East. He's wearing a lot of leather. He's carrying a rifle. He looks like he's armed to go out and take on the frontier rather than in the portrait where he looks like he's much more of a gentleman scholar type type individual. Yeah, you see um, you see the fur trim in this in this uh, suit of clothes. You can also see that the um, you know the leather leggings and the coat the coat is kind of stitched together. This is obviously not you know uh, factory made clothing. You can also see. His trademark coonskin cap, apparently already in his in his hand, as well as the hunting equipment. He's got a powder horn around his around his shoulder and a rifle. This portrait does seem, as as Ian just said, to depict him more as a kind of you know urbane gentleman. Of course, this is a later period, um, and this is not. Fancy clothing, but he does seem to be wearing, uh, you know, an ordinary suit of clothes with a, with a white collared shirt. This uh, depiction um, begins to, I think, uh, take on some of the familiar trappings of Daniel Boone as a, as a, uh, as a kind of a mythic figure in American culture, uh, where the. The collared shirt and uh, and wool jacket that we saw in the previous portrait has been replaced by a fringed buckskin uh, jacket, um, and uh, it's unclear what kind of shirt he's wearing, but it's not a fancy one. the The most famous depiction of Daniel Boone of the 19th century is this painting that was done by George Caleb Bingham in the 1850s. Bingham is one of the great um, uh, genre painters of the 19th century. Really, if you're not familiar with his work, I recommend uh, checking it out. He did a lot of really interesting stuff. This is a um, one, of his most painting, one of his most famous paintings, Daniel Boone Escorting Settlers Through the Cumberland Gap. So in 1851, 1852, he's depicting something that occurred, you know, four generations earlier, right? This is a, this is a much later painting. What uh, what strikes you about this depiction of Daniel Boone and of the party that he was leading? What do you see here? I think it's interesting that it's choosing to portray the party as sort of coming out of the shadows and into the light. Like it's sort of the light of entering a new land, um, but. In the end, it was still more of a, it was a new, unexplored thing to defend for themselves. 
that's very much depicted as sort of the beginning of an era, I suppose, if you want to put it that way. Yeah, that's really well said. I mean, it is. it, it definitely is, you have the sense of coming out of darkness into light. And to think of that as historical as well as geographical, um, I think, is, is really useful. This is a dangerous wilderness that these people are traversing, right? You can see by the blasted tree, by the uh, threatening weather, by the craggy rocks, right? And also just by how dark everything is. Um, you see the swordsman, you know, in the background. Uh, I think that's a sword, presumably fending off enemies, hostiles, probably hostile native peoples. In fact, Boone's party was attacked by uh, by native warriors. Um, what else? The woman on the horse is kind of reminiscent of the Virgin Mary, it seems, maybe, which would suggest maybe that divine providence is, is smiling down on on this act. Yeah, exactly. Her, um, this, this, this female figure is clearly echoing, you know, traditional artistic depictions of Mary, uh, the Virgin Mary, and so there is, yes, the idea of divine providence at work in this, uh, in this emigration, I think, for sure. I had a very different interpretation of that guy in the back when I first looked at this. Um, dude was, like, elevated status, it strikes me that he's got a crop. Than it a could be a crop, yeah. And striking an ox or, or He something. could be driving livestock forward, yeah. yeah that's, that's true. Yeah, I'm not sure which, which it is. Yeah, Chris? Um, to tie their two comments together, um, there's the great song, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. And coming, they're coming through this shadowy valley, walking out, and they're confident, and as uh, you noted, the divine providence, and they're coming into the light, they're walking out of that valley. Yeah, yeah, it, it does make you think of the 23rd Psalm. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. What about Boone? We haven't said anything about, sorry, Emma, do you want to? No, I was going to say, it's interesting to see how um, you can clearly see the perspective of the artist in this and how it kind of seems like this party's like the saving grace. They're going to come and like save Kentucky and make it so much better. Like they don't seem to be struggling even though there is um, like all the wood around them and like what like we pointed out, like how wilderness it was. Like it just seems like, oh, we're going to come and do this, no problem. Like we're just that good. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, it's a good point. The, the, it's, they're surrounded by dangers, but they don't seem to be, they seem to be apart from the dangers. Yeah. And bringing a new kind of civilized existence into the wilderness. What about Daniel Boone himself? What do you know to, what, what would you say about the way that he is depicted? Seems depicted as a very plain and ordinary man. And plain and ordinary, ordinary, yeah. It okay. seems like my interpretation of that is that he's trying to lead regular, normal American people into the West, and that it's a place for the people of the United States to go west into, you know, to head into this brave new world, and that any man can do it. It's not just, you know, some military officer, or some wealthy person who's paying for this expedition. It's normal man who's taking them in and exploring into this new world. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, that's that's interesting. I like that. I like that emphasis on ordinary, the ordinariness of this of this party. I also I also think it's interesting. Like he seems to be wearing, you know, kind of like the 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 leather suit um, that it's appropriate to picture him in, and yet Bingham has kind of transformed it into a very respectable looking kind of. He he looks like a you know almost like a middle class gentleman, and particularly I think um, the by giving him a different kind of hat. Um, there, there's a way that he's kind of been, been dressed up from uh, those earlier depictions. Um, anyway, this is a very, this is a very, I think, an interesting and important painting, and one that really captures the sensibilities in mid nineteenth century America about the whole westering enterprise, the whole idea that American westward expansion is about bringing civilization to a howling wilderness. There's a, I've got, this is another painting um, that I can't find, I could not find an inscription for, but I think this is a really interesting variation on the, on the Bingham depiction. And I think it's kind of characteristic of mid to late 20th century uh, values (coughs) associated with the same process. What, what strikes you here? In contrast, like how would you say this painting differs from Bingham's painting in depicting the the enterprise uh, of westward expansion? In the first picture, the light was really just shining on Boone, and here the light is on everybody, and you can see it all the way across. It's not just the guy in front. Yeah, the light is on everybody, so it's a more kind of democratic depiction of the group uh, itself. What about the what about the natural setting? It's a lot softer. It looks like like their way has been being lit through that like light flowing through these trees, and it looks a lot easier for them than it did in the first painting. Yeah, it's softer. It looks easier. It's a cathedral of nature, right? It's not a howling wilderness, and that, you know that seems to me to capture a lot about the difference between you know nineteenth-century sensibilities about the westward enterprise and twentieth-century sensibilities about you know the sort of the, the benign glories of nature. There are no benign glories in the, in, the, in the Bingham painting. It's interesting to think about, you know, why, um, why Boone is misplaced in our imaginations, why we tend to confuse him with the sort of uh, Davy Crockett era. I do have a, one theory um, and this might not relate at all to your generation, but it relates to mine. When I was a kid, I think I confused Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett because Fess Parker played them both in Walt Disney TV shows, and he wore, if I'm not mistaken, almost exactly the same con- uh, costume for both roles. So that's what I blame my confusion on. But I, I do think, more fundamentally, we don't really think of the, Ameri- the era of the revolution as being also an era of westward expansion, but it, but it, it really is. Um, and in fact, in the experience of those early Kentucky settlements, the American Revolution legitimizes westward expansion, a kind of an unbridled form of westward expansion, for the first time uh, in American history. This is the map that was printed in uh, that John Filson, uh, that 1784 book, about the discovery and settlement of Kentucky. What strikes you about this image? If you were, I don't know, 
renting land in New Jersey and contemplating the possibility of moving to Kentucky, what would this, what would this image tell you about what you could expect in Kentucky? Yeah, Tara. It's empty. There's nobody there. There's no divisions of like these American lines or anything. It's just open land. It looks like open land. If you look carefully, you'll see some of those early settlements, but there's a lot of open space. Yeah, what else? Uh, Ian. It, it seems to me like they, there's a lot of detail on the river networks, but there's not a lot of detail on a whole lot else, which to me would tell me that they don't really know what's out there. They own the, or the government owns the land but, and controls the land, but they don't know what's out there any more than anybody else does. So I have no idea what I'm getting into if I actually buy land out there. Yeah, yeah, it's true. There's not a lot. Of, there's there's not a lot of uh, there are not a lot of political demarcations. But I think the the point that you started with is the point that I would emphasize most, which is, if you are a farmer, what you want is well watered fertile land. And this is a picture of what appears to be extraordinarily well watered fertile land. In fact, it is well watered. If you know the Kentucky bluegrass, I mean, this is a great place to be a farmer. Um, and Filson is basically, you know, in, in, this, in this pamphlet, and especially in this map, throwing the doors of people's imaginations open to the possibility of settling in Kentucky. So it's an interesting question, um, A, did it work? And B, if you chose to follow Filson's advice and move there, what would your experience be? And the answer is, um, man, it was complicated. People who took up land in early Kentucky stumbled into a kind of nightmarish set of problems associated with, uh, with land distribution. And those, the problems are really um, embodied in the Virginia Land Ordinance of 1779. Remember I said that um, Virginia extended its jurisdiction over all of Kentucky. It created a big new western county. And so in 1779, the, um, the Virginia House of Delegates passed a law that um, uh, set out the terms by which people could claim land in, uh, in this new western county. And it was really complicated. Um, the first thing about the Virginia Land Ordinance of 1779 is it gave priority to settlers rather than speculators. And so in this, you can see a kind of revolutionary impulse to make sure that, you know, some rich guy who never goes out there doesn't get control of all the land. It gave priority to people who had actually settled uh, the land. But it created a bewildering and expensive um, process that they had to follow in order to actually gain title. Um, and so the, the process was multi-stage. The first of all, the first thing you had to do, you, first of all, you had to go to Kentucky in order to have a legitimate claim, right? Because it, it gave priority to settlers. But then, once you had gone to Kentucky, and um, the, then the next thing you have to do is... Um, is uh, go back to Richmond in order to pay the fees that would allow you to claim the lands that you had already 
that you had already um, visited. So you would go to the treasurer's office in Richmond to pay a patent fee, get a treasurer's receipt, then to the auditor's office. Sorry, that's where you would get the treasurer's receipt. Then you would go to the land office where the receipt and certificate entitled you to a land warrant. And then with a land warrant in hand, you could return to Kentucky. And in Kentucky, register with the county surveyor and have the land surveyed. So you go, first of all, to Kentucky to find out where you want to be in the first place. Then you go back. You go through this elaborate series of steps in Richmond to get all the legal paper that you need to go back to Kentucky. And then you've got to um, hire a surveyor to do a survey. And this is, you know, a lot of people are doing this at the same time. And there is no system, system in place in Kentucky to make sure that any of this occurs in a kind of an order in a kind of an orderly way. Then the surveyor issues you a plat and certificate along with an endorsed warrant, and then you would go back to Richmond to receive a land title. This is impossible. Nobody can do this right. So um, what happened in the course of the revolution, and especially after the revolution very quickly, is that lots of people went to Kentucky and chaos ensued. The population of Kentucky rose um, very slowly, as long as there was active fighting going on, but, uh, and, and it kind of ebbed and flowed during the war years. But in 1783, there were 12,000 people in Kentucky. 1783, the date of the Treaty of Paris. After that point, it rose really fast. By 1790, there were 100,000 people in Kentucky. By 1800, 220,000 people, 40,000 of them enslaved. So this is a, obviously a very rapid pattern of population growth. If you look at what, what resulted from all of these people going to a place that had a bad land distribution system, um, er, the early history of Kentucky as a state features legal documents with a lot of pictures like this. This is um, uh, a plat that was made by Hancock Taylor of Mildred Lightfoot's claim. And I'm not even sure which one of these Mildred Lightfoot's is. Near the falls of the Ohio, near what's now Louisville, Kentucky, um, that shows all of the other claims that overlapped and competed with hers. The early history of Kentucky <coughs> is a history of nonstop litigation over survey problems like this. Um, but it's... You know, this kind of problem is woven into the structure of that, of that land distribution, uh, that land ordinance of 1779, right? Which, I mean, the Kentucky legislature thought, I mean, the Virginia legislature thought they were creating a system that would be fair and democratic, right? Because you had to do all this stuff in the right order and you have to do it the right way. But nobody can actually do what the statute describes effectively, or many people can't. And so what you get is chaos on the ground. So it's with this in mind that um, people like Thomas Jefferson in the 1780s were rethinking in fundamental ways the problem of land distribution. And um, this is a 
process, a reconceptualization process, that culminated in the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. For today, I asked you to read actually um, not about the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, but about the, the Land Ordinance of 1784 in the Jefferson Papers. The editors of the Jefferson Papers have a really good essay on the kind of evolution of thinking about Western lands that I asked you to take a look at. So um, the, the, um, there, there are a lot of details in the Land Ordinance of 1784, and then that got modified for the Land Ordinance of 1787. But what, um, in your reading of that essay in the Jefferson Papers, what particularly struck you as the kind of um, main takeaway points that, uh, that the editors emphasize in describing this process of developing a land system? Do you remember any, uh, any key points, the, particularly focusing on Jefferson and on um, his evolving thought about um, the, the Trans-Appalachian West, that part of the territory of, of U.S. territory beyond the bounds of, of the existing states? I think the editors did, like might have diluted what Jefferson was trying to get across. I think Jefferson was really radical in thinking that he should they should really close off these lands and kind of just settle them and get it over with. And the uh, editors really wanted it to really wanted to look at the land as like extra resource that the colonies had, and to not just like put it off and say that we can't keep expanding. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so you think that the, that essay kind of dilutes the radicalism of, of, Jefferson's, of Jefferson's intention. Yeah, I mean, and you can see Jefferson's thought it, itself evolving. I mean, initially, they talk about, you know, the fact that he's considering, you know, one or a couple of, of Western states, and eventually, um, you know, this, this evolves into... This is a map. There, there, there is no map in Jefferson's hands of his intention, but, but um, there is a surviving map, the so-called Jefferson-Hartley map that that essay talks about from 1784. And um, you know, one of the things that Jefferson had in mind, and, and lots of people had in mind, Thomas Paine actually wrote a pamphlet about the importance of this, is that all of the colonies that had you know, uh, claims to Western lands that extended far into the interior, because a lot of the early colonies had sea-to-sea charters. So, you know, Virginia uh, was advantaged in this, New York. So certain colonies were advantaged in this. And, and the first thing that Jefferson and others believed that it was important to do is to have um, all of the individual sea states cede their Western land claims to the United States so the United States could collectively deal with, with all of them together. Um, and so you can see that Jefferson has imagined um, Western boundaries, including a pretty aggressive Western boundary for the for the state of Pennsylvania, to open up these lands to new uh, settlements. And then you can see by 1784, Jefferson is imagining the possibility of 14 different new Western states, right? Um, and both the Land Ordinance of 1784 and the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, um, they're very conscious of the kinds of problems that, that, that Virginia Land Ordinance of 1779 created. And they want to have a system of, um, 
that, you know, that will allow for rapid westward expansion in a more orderly way. So uniform surveys and public sales are, um, are you know, principles that are kind of woven into these early ordinances. And then the thing that is most famous, most noteworthy, and also kind of, I think, most easily overlooked by Americans, by us, because we take it for granted, the territorial system. So what, what do I mean by this, this phrase, the territorial system? What is the territorial system? Isn't it like areas with less than a certain population cannot yet be incorporated as states until they reach a certain number? Like, I think technically there's some states in the U.S. today that wouldn't have even reached that number. I think Kentucky's one of them. No, that's not. No? Kentucky's big enough to be a state. But yes, that's right. You can't become a state until you reach a certain population. So, so it creates a territorial status, and then, um, which is to say that it's an area that's, um, that's governed by the federal government but does not yet have state status. But then when, you know, in the Northwest Ordinances, it ultimately uh, states when 60,000 people reside in the territory then they can you know, gather together and apply for statehood status. This is so unusual. And it's, it's really contrary to the, like for example, the British model of colonization. Because Great Britain creates the colony of, you know, name your colony, Virginia. But there's never a time when Virginia is going to become part of Great Britain, right? It's permanently a colony. This is a crazy idea to, um, to envision for a nation made up of states to envision this kind of elastic, elastic Western boundary, elastic number of states. Jefferson here has drawn a map in which new not yet existing states outnumber the original 13 states of the United States. What, what, what nation would do this to itself? It's a very strange idea, right? It is a very strange idea to have woven into the fabric of the Constitution a system that allows for the indefinite expansion of the nation through, through space and through the accretion of additional, uh, additional political units that have the power over time to overwhelm the original, you know, the, the, the political units, the states that originally um, made up the, the country. I just have a question about the expansion part. Um, what did, like, France or Spain or Great Britain think of this map? Because this very clearly incorporates territories that they supposedly claimed and had claimed to in, like, the northwest or in the southwest down there. Well, um, that's right. And uh, it became, um, you know, the United States had to worry a lot about the hostility of foreign powers in, in the early decades of its existence. Um, and uh, even, in, even in territories that had been ceded to the United States by Great Britain by the terms of the Tr Treaty of Paris of 1783, Britain continued to, it never gave up its western posts in the Great Lakes region, and it continued to harass uh, or, or encourage uh, native allies to harass settlement. The War of 1812, you know, is a kind of a, um, you know, a British assault on American sovereignty um, on multiple fronts at once. And similarly in the southeast, uh, Spain in particular um, uh, challenged American sovereignty over the American southeast and um, 
Aaron Burr and various other people, you know, considered conspiring. Actually, a lot of people who settled in Kentucky and Tennessee spent some time, uh, people like John Sevier in Kentucky spent some time um, thinking about whether a Spanish and a, an alliance with Spain would serve them better than an alliance with the United States. So the United States had a real problem. Um, I mean, this, this map uh, is envisioning a system that will encourage the rapid occupation and settlement of a gigantic new territory of land. But as people you know, take up the challenge or take up the promise of that possibility, there is very good, uh, very good possibility that the United States would not be the kind of superintending power that would best serve their interests. And there's a period uh, in the early uh, in the early Republic when a lot of people in the Southwest were more interested in or as interested in Spain as a possible ally as they were in in the United States. Yeah. Wasn't the Oregon Territory? Uh, I may be overstepping the bounds of this class a little bit, but wasn't the Oregon Territory split between Britain and the United States for a good long, like, good long time? Right. Yeah. I mean, Oregon. The Oregon country um, was was split, um, and um, there was, you know, it's not resolved until the the. It's not clear until the 1840s that that boundary would be resolved with without without a fight, but um, in originally. The um, the uh, the dividing line between U.S. and British claims in Oregon was fuzzy, just because the you know the the Treaty of Paris didn't really draw the line that far that far out. Well, um, this territorial system, I want to just stress, you know, this is a very uh, a very a radical. Um, a radical system. This is a radical thing. There is no real clear precedent for a nation inventing a system for uh, you know, occupying new territory in this way. And the idea that new states would be admitted on an equal footing with old states, I think, is particularly, is particularly striking. Ultimately, what you see in these provisions is the creation of a uh, an, an elastic nation. Here is a map that you know that shows um, the Northwest Territory as it's ultimately created in 1787, um, and um, you know this is a map that stands in 1787. 1787 is this was this was an act of the Second Continental Congress. This is before the Constitution had, had even been drafted. So this is at a point where the United, Nation, where the United States is still you know, kind of an infant, ill-defined nation. And yet this map stands as an open invitation to um, people who are interested in westward expansion in moving on to new lands on easy terms. It's kind of an open invitation to think that the United States is somehow going to oversee and guarantee that process. The, the idea of um, a kind of uniform public system of land distribution was partly um, was partly undermined by the by a more complicated set of arrangements in the revolutionary period because you know in a kind of an ideal sense Jefferson thought it would be great to have this sort of uh, blank uh, slate where you could ensure 
some kind of open public access. But in fact, there were Congress had all kinds of reasons to um, favor and support other kinds of uh, purchases, particularly because Congress needed money um, and was always willing to take shortcuts with Western lands. And so um, at the same time that it was, you know, inventing the territorial system, it was also proceeding with other kinds of private sales. For example, in 1787, uh, it sold 5 million acres of land to the Ohio Company of New England. This was a a company that was made up of uh, former officers of the Continental Army, and um, this 5 million acres became the original core, the core settlements of of the new state of Ohio, that, um, that group subcontracted a sale of about a million acres to a second company, the Scioto Company. Um, uh, Congress sold over 300,000 acres to a guy named John Cleve Sims in 1788. And, um, uh, and uh, in, at the same time, Connecticut uh, was claiming lands uh, that resulted in a so-called Western Reserve of 3.36 million acres. So the point of this is to say that even at the same time that Congress was trying to map out this uniform system, it was also sowing confusion in various ways by, um, by, by allowing other groups to purchase or claim lands on their own terms. And then there was the problem of officers' warrants from the Revolution, which also gave Continental Army officers a claim to uh, Western lands um, and, and state officers as well. So that results in the creation of the Virginia Military District of 4.2 million acres and the U.S. Military District of 2.5 million acres. So it's interesting because we think about that Northwest Ordinance as being a very kind of clear and clean set of provisions about how Western lands are going to be <coughs> occupied. But at the very same time that Congress is formulating that uh, policy, it is also hastily disposing of gigantic parcels on different terms uh, in the West. And so um, uh, in the fall of 1787, Congress also auctioned off 73,000 acres in the first federal range under the terms of the Northwest Ordinance. And so all of this stuff is going forward together at the same time, resulting in a map of, uh, you know, Ohio did not yet exist at this point, but this is a map uh, of the modern state of Ohio that shows all of these things laid out in relation to each other. The Ohio Company purchase the U.S. and Virginia military districts, the Sims purchase, the Connecticut Western Reserve, and the the seven ranges that were being surveyed under the terms of the the Northwest Ordinance. This is a kind of really complicated and chaotic chaotic system. And, by the way, every inch of that ground was claimed by (coughs) some combination of Native peoples who um, still had a legitimate claim to... um, to control that land. So what this meant, because the United States was so enthusiastic about Western lands, it was proceeding on all of these and all of these fronts at once, and because it desperately needed the money that Western land could produce, this meant that it had to deal very hastily and expeditiously 
with a very large and complex native population that occupied the Ohio country. And as I said, believed that they had won whatever battles were fought in the course of the American Revolution. So the United States implemented a series of what can only be described as sham treaties. You know, you, we often say, like, you know, Indians were che- cheated in, in the treaty-making process. I mean, the truth is that different treaties have different stories, and some of them were very, you know, uh, uh, very legitimate enterprises. But this was a series of sham treaties where, in, in most cases, the United States did not have uh, uh, legitimate representatives of the of the Indian nations that they were trying to deal with. There was liquor involved. There was coercion involved. The treat the first of those treaties was the Treaty of Fort Stanwix in 1784. Right after the Treaty of Paris, uh, representatives of the of the Continental Congress raced off to upstate New York, um, trying to get there before New York's own representatives could get there to deal with the Iroquois Confederacy. And um, the Treaty of Fort Stanwix, um, this, is, this is one of the treaties in which the uh, native representatives present explicitly said that they did not have the authority to sign, a, to, to sign any binding document. Um, but the United States presented them with the doctrine that they had been defeated as a result of the, um, the British defeat and insisted that they cede all of their claims to lands in the Ohio country. And they got a document that was signed, um, though it was contested by the Iroquois from the very beginning. Something very similar happened at the Treaty of Fort McIntosh in 1785, dealing with the Delawares, and at the Treaty of Fort Finney in 1786, dealing with the Shawnees. Ultimately, Congress came to recognize that these treaties were all so problematic that they tried to organize a single treaty meeting at Fort Harmar in 1789 that would bring together representatives of all of the Ohio Indians in one um, mass gathering. Again, the United States walked away with a signed document, but from the uh, perspective of the Native Americans who attended, it was completely chaotic and indeterminative, and again, they contested the outcome. So in that context, with those treaties, those failed treaties in the background, from 1787 until 1794, the United States was back at war with the Ohio Indians. And um, this was a war that, uh, that really was the first military undertaking of the new United States Army. The first function of the US Army was to try to defeat this coalition of Ohio Indians, which uh, the United States had failed to bargain with in, a, in, in, a, uh, in the form of treaties, uh, and which the United States really needed to get out of the way if it was going to proceed with uh, its Western land uh, uh, enterprise. Arthur St. Clair um, was the first commander of American forces in, uh, in the Ohio country. He did not do very well. In 1789 and 1791, he suffered major defeats. He was succeeded in his command by Anthony Wayne, so-called Mad Anthony Wayne, who um, had more success, and finally defeated uh, in, a fairly, in a decisive fashion the Ohio Coalition at the Battle of Fallen Timbers in 1794. Um, after that battle, the Ohio Indians signed the Treaty of Greenville to... Um, bring an end to the conflict, 
and agreed to sign away some of their lands. And so the Treaty of Greenville is the first uh, treaty in the Ohio country that was the product not of negotiation but of, uh, but of warfare. And the um, Ohio coalition agreed to sign away a big chunk of a big chunk of um, the modern state of Ohio and, and also uh, part of Indiana. So you can see that um, the, the result of this warfare was to basically uh, give the, let, allow the United States to claim control of most of the territories that we just talked about that they had, in, in effect, already arranged for uh, the, the, the sale and settlement of. <coughs> this pattern of, um, you know, uh, really rapid westward expansion without regard for um, native territorial claims um, and in a process that really accelerated uh, violence between the United States and Native Americans and the kind of rapid dispossession of Native lands, this, you know, this uh, series of experiences in the 1780s and 1790s really, in many ways, sets a pattern that the United States follows for a really long period of time to come, right? Because the U.S. Um, very soon comes to believe not only that it would be really great to settle everything east of the Mississippi, but that, in fact that this was a nation with a continental destiny, right? A, a manifest destiny to over, to over uh, spread the continent. And that was a doctrine, that doctrine of manifest destiny that bore very hard on the interests of native peoples throughout North America. Did the US look at this as like an effective way of dealing with the Native Americans? War? Because they continued to do it to like up to the industrial, industrial revolution, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good question. The U.S. think of this as an effective way to deal with Native Americans. I think increasingly the U.S. came to think of this as the only way to deal with Native Americans um, because, if, because of the fact that um, it was, uh, the U.S. was invested in such a rapid form of territorial expansion that it could not really take Native claims to territory seriously. And the flip side of, of, of this story is... Um, is the, uh, the, the story of you know, not only warfare against Indians and not only sham treaties, but also um, the, the fact that the United States chose to perpetuate European doctrines about the idea that natives, Native Americans did not really own the land, that European claims superseded Native American claims, right? Um, that's the, the, the famous discovery doctrine, right? So... European crowns, you know, from the 16th century forward would say, um, you know, that, for example, you could divide up North America among France and Britain and Spain based on who discovered what. And the presence of Native Americans was only incidental. It would have been possible for the United States in the era of all men are created equal to say, you know what, that discovery doctrine is pretty problematic. And we really ought to think about putting the claims of people who are already on the ground on a different footing and treating them more fairly, right, more respectfully. Um, but that's not the doctrine that evolved in the United States. Instead, the doctrine that evolved in the United States, the, war, the Marshall Court in the 1820s and 30s explicitly says in a couple of important treaty uh, Doc, documents 
uh, explicitly says that that European doctrine of discovery um, remains in force. And it's funny because Marshall, um, in you know, is, is sometimes almost sounds bemused by this doctrine. But he says this is the way that it's always been done, and this is the way we're still doing it. The two famous cases, which still get cited all the time um, in this context, are Johnson v. McIntosh, which involved land sales by Piankashaw Indians, which was decided in 1823. And here, for the first time, Chief Justice John Marshall explicitly says. The discovery doctrine that European crowns used uh, in earlier centuries is still the doctrine that holds today. Um, and he described the Piankashaws in this, uh, in this opinion as perpetual inhabitants with diminutive rights, and then goes on to justify that description by saying that they were an inferior race of people without the privileges of citizens and under the perpetual protection and pupillage of the government. Right, so um, in order to, to justify the perpetuation of this discovery doctrine, he also needs to characterize them as racially distinct and inferior um, in American law. And the same kind of ideas further articulated in the famous Cherokee Nation v. Georgia case in 1831, where, uh, where Marshall coined the phrase domestic dependent nations to describe uh, the legal status of Indians, which is a weird phrase, domestic dependent. It's unclear how you can be a nation, but also dependent. Because nation implies sovereignty, but domestic and dependent imply um, no sovereignty. And in fact, that the kind of contradiction um, inherent in that phrase is really at the heart of the, the legal status of the modern, uh, the modern reservation system that continues to govern the relationship between uh, Indian tribes and the United States. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting. So, when you when we when we step back from this and think about, you know, return to the question of what did the American Revolution mean for Native Americans? Um, was the American Revolution revolutionary for Native Americans? No, not really. I mean, in, terms, in doctrinal terms, it was the opposite. It explicitly perpetuated a doctrine that regarded them as um, you know, less than legitimate claimants to territory. Um, it was revolutionary only in the sense that it put into place a set of mechanisms for national expansion that dramatically accelerated the, the, you know, the, the, the means by which they could be um, dispossessed uh, through violence, through treaty making, through a uh, kind of inexorable territorial expansion that had a logic of it, its own that ignored the legitimacy of native claims. Any other uh, any questions, thoughts before we finish for today? I just had a thought on like domestic dependent nations. We talked about this a lot in one of my classes in high school about how uh, colonists would like arm the natives with weaponry, and they would like learn to hunt with rifles. And through this use of like learning to hunt with rifles, they would depend on the colonists for ammunition and for gunpowder. And I think it just describes domestic dependent nations very well. Yeah, that that idea of dependency that has to do with um, the, the idea that um, native communities came to rely on like European manufacturers 
um, is, a, is a concept that um, anthropologists and historians have, have developed. I think that in this case, he means what Marshall meant by dependent was not dependent on European manufacturers. I think what he means here is dependent on American law. Um, that is to say, they're not independent. They can't run their own affairs. They're dependent in the sense that ultimately what the United States go, what the United States says goes, right? So if you think about the reservation system, it's still true, right? They have certain limited autonomy within the system, but they are dependent on the United States and they cannot act independently as nations. And that idea um, of you know domestic dependent nations uh, is is you know uh, it's still the way you know uh, Native American tribes that's the new that's the official federal term uh, that's still the way that uh, Native American tribes operate in relation to the United States. All right, I think that's everything for today. I'll see you on Wednesday, and we will talk about virtue, gender, and citizenship. You can watch Lectures in History every weekend on American History TV. We take you inside college classrooms to learn about topics ranging from the American Revolution to 9-11. That's Saturday at 8 p.m. and midnight Eastern on C-SPAN 3.